third day of working on the samadhi practice. Actually, that's not true for all of us. Some of us have been here since Friday night. Um, just a few reflections, and then I'd like to know what's happening. I'd like to talk it over. Because so I think we have, based on just the sample of the interviews, three rather different currents of experience and interest and understanding of samadhi. Some people are virtually totally new to the practice. Some have been practicing a long time or a, fair, a fairly long time but have had no experience with samadhi, not done that as a, an exclusive practice, and others have. One thing that helps in this work of calming and steadying the mind can be from time to time a reflection on the value of steadiness or calmness and the liability of having a mind that isn't steady, that's scattered. It is simply to reflect You could start from the most simple thing, like when we're not paying attention, we bump into things and knock things over. But more important are those moments when the mind is unified, and even without meditation practice, there are times when it is, and the way that feels, the experience of the mind's energies being unified around something. It could be a movie that you're engrossed in. And one of the reasons a movie is successful is that it has captured our attention. So our energies, which are moving all over the place, at least for the period of that time that we're watching the movie, are unified. And the mind is happy, much happier when it's unified. And so you can begin to notice in small ways, even during your day here, Also, it's opposite when there is indecisiveness and conflict, postponement. Things get polarized. We want to go in one way, but then we want to go in another way. It doesn't feel so good. The reason this kind of reflection, which has been done since ancient times, is so useful, is that unless you value, truly value, Uh, serenity or calmness of mind, you're not going to do the things that are necessary to develop it. And the culture hasn't really educated us to fully understand the tremendous implications of having a steady mind. We go away on vacations or go to special places to calm down. But by and large, it's external. And then when we leave the vacation somehow it's all right. The mind just starts in again. So that kind of a reflection can help you see in seeing the liability of having a mind that is scattered, that is not unified, and in seeing the tremendous asset in having a mind that's whole, that's unified, that's steady, that can be brought to bear on a problem and to stick with that problem the thoroughness that's necessary that comes about through the development of samadhi. 
the ability to start a project and finish it. These are all expressions of samadhi work. And as mentioned the other night, we already have samadhi, each one of us. If we're a human being, we have it. To tie your shoelaces, you need some samadhi. Really, you couldn't do it. Just imagine if you didn't have a, a certain amount of concentration, how would your shoelaces get tied? Something is holding, there's a certain constancy, enough to tie your shoelaces. Now, that level of samadhi is not enough to get free, but it is enough to tie our shoelaces. Okay. So, how are we going to come to value a level of intensity of this kind of a, a focused mind that goes beyond shoelace intensity? Well, holding a glass of water takes samadhi just to not just drop it and let it spill all over the place. Because what is needed is to raise the mind to a a level of intensity which is well beyond what, what is in most of our, perhaps all of our common grasp in our past experience. Uh, a sustained quality to it. That means that uh, it's not only that the mind is steady, but the steadiness endures over time. It isn't broken by the many challenges that meet it. And also degrees of refinement. That is, the mind can be, have samadhi that's very workable for certain tasks, but the, the task of wisdom requires an extraordinarily, an exquisite kind of subtlety of this kind of attention. Now, unless we value that, why would we want to sit hour after hour doing the kinds of things that we're doing? So it can be helpful to dig out of your own experience. Some of these reflections can be from the past remembering what it felt like when you were scattered and all over the place, remembering what it felt like when you weren't, when for some reason everything came together and you were um, at one. You were able to become one with the task or one with the object, one with a person, one with nature. That's, that's something that might help. <clears throat> In taking on, as a practice, this exclusive attention to one object, and we're using the breath, but it could be anything. The Buddha listed 40 such subjects. In taking it on, one of the things that we're dealing with is, can be viewed as seeing that the path of thought, that is taking the path of thought does not lead to peace. If you're going to walk the path of thought, it's not going to lead to any peace, not, not of any appreciable degree. What I mean by that is something like this. Do you remember, was it either last night or the night, maybe it was in a discussion group, I don't remember. Um, I was suggesting an image, someone, perhaps, it, okay, it doesn't matter where it came up, I'll go through it again. Um, we've used the term heart or chitta, to represent something far more vast than mind. Mind, uh, as we'll be using it during the retreat, has more to do with psychological functions that are very familiar to us, thinking and planning and recognizing things and concocting meanings about the things that we recognize, deciding what they are, putting labels on them and making up stories about them. The mind does this. <clears throat> and the heart is much more vast than that. 
uh, one extraordinarily important aspect of the heart is that it, it doesn't think at all. It just knows. Its job is total knowing. And within that is this, um, at times, feverish activity of thought. Now, the image, if, if those of you who are present, if you recall, is that the heart and the mind are really not different. The, the mind was likened to, let's say, the ruffles on the ocean or the waves on the ocean. The ocean's waves. And the heart was likened to the vastness of the ocean itself. The depths of the ocean, which can be quite still. And clearly, the waves are made out of water. It's all the same ocean. It's all the same water. So that... Uh, when, if the, if the waves of the ocean were to calm down, if they were to subside, then the heart would be at peace. Well, is it the heart and the mind or the mind and the heart? It's, these are just words to help us understand different um, conditions, our condition as it varies. Okay, so let's go to the mind now. So this is, let's say, the ocean that has a portion of itself quite active, thinking. It seems that the mind, unless it's trained, can't stand alone. It must land somewhere. It has endless numbers of preoccupations. It must be preoccupied with something. This is normal. All of our minds are like that. It is preoccupied with something or another. Now, a mind that has not been explored uh, too much, a mind that has not tasted dharma in this or some other uh, tradition that is comparable, the preoccupations that the mind throws up also burden the heart. That is, it's really all one family, as you can see. That is, we think thoughts which make us unhappy. It's rather strange that we're, we're doing the whole thing. It's a one-man, one-woman show. So that the preoccupations, by and large, are preoccupations that don't lead to peace, that don't lead to fulfillment. So much of what the mind is preoccupied with um, produce dukkha, is dukkha, suffering, unsatisfactoriness of one sort or another. And yet, uh, if nothing is done about it, the, the mind has the incessant need to keep being preoccupied, to keep landing on something. And the things it keeps producing to land on are not the things that seem to be helpful for it, nourishing for it, healing for it. And in, in a way, that's the predicament of the unexamined mind. Now, some people have been fortunate enough to be well brought up and they have perhaps have had some good experiences in life, early in life and later on. And so, some of the thoughts that are produced are not so destructive. But all of us, all of us human beings seem to have that as a a characteristic. We need to be preoccupied. And the preoccupations don't seem to be beneficial for that which is producing the preoccupations.
Now, the path of the path of Dharma is for the heart to turn towards preoccupations at first, which are beneficial. That is, if you think of a mind that is producing thoughts, many of which lead to dissatisfaction uh, and suffering, thoughts which are unfavorable uh, about ourselves, thoughts about other people that are ungenerous and cruel. I'm not even talking about the actions that come out of it, just the thoughts themselves, emotions. Step number one in all paths that I know about, whether it's made explicit or not, is to begin to give the mind something more wholesome to be preoccupied with. Granted, it seems to have to be preoccupied. It can't stand alone. It doesn't know how to do that. So, we have scriptures, we have chanting, we have visual images that are beautiful, talks, uh, music, spiritual music. We have, um, coming from scriptures, verbal uh, conceptualizations that uh, are guidelines to action that promise to produce more harmonious living and more, more harmonious state in the, in the heart. And at first, a lot of the training is trying to, granted that the mind needs a preoccupation, can we give it a preoccupation that serves it rather than, than undermines it? Now, so if we come to the practice and the mind is overwhelmingly preoccupied with destructive things and a lot more work is needed for that. This is one level of spiritual work. Uh, in some way, trading in the destructive preoccupations for preoccupations which are beneficial, which enhance the sense of being alive. And all these things do that, attempt to do that. Some people need it less. Now, the mind can learn to stand alone. And one of the ways in which it can learn to stand alone is through samadhi practice. It's not the ultimate fulfillment. For those of you who are feeling really happy, I don't mean to puncture any bubbles if you're feeling very calm and stable or have had some moments of that. It's uh, absolutely essential and it isn't the final step in the practice. But let's use the image again. If the, mind, if the mind is walking the path of thought and hopes to get peace, it perhaps has a better chance if the thoughts are peaceful thoughts. And that's what we're attempting to do, in a sense, in all Dharma education. There's a lot of words that talk about nothingness and emptiness. You know, many of you probably know the Zen tradition which talks about how words are unnecessary and attachment to language is the problem. Problem take up a fair amount of bookshelves in most spiritual bookstores and people's libraries. So it seems inescapable that we, there is some way in which we're trying to give the mind something to be preoccupied with that um, is more helpful. When you uh, set up a samadhi practice, what we're doing is we're saying, 
And we're using the breath, but it could be anything else. It could be the contemplation of the Buddha. Some of you have heard that, Buddha, in other traditions or in Buddhism as well. Mantras and objects, which are more neutral, can be used. But we're using the breath. So what essentially, it's a struggle between the mind's preoccupation and it loves all kinds of things which are destructive to itself. They're called the kilesas. Some of you have heard that term. Greed, hatred, and delusion being the parents and they have offspring that are variants of greed, hatred, and delusion. The kilesas are embedded in the heart. The heart is, in a sense, wounded by the kilesas, these tendencies which don't really benefit us. And we fold our legs and someone says, just take the breath as an exclusive object. And every time your mind, which must be preoccupied, if you agree with me, I mean, see if your mind isn't, at least right now, every time your mind is preoccupied with the things that it normally is preoccupied with, I want this, I don't want that, I hate that, I love that, I'm happy, I'm unhappy, I'm comfortable, I'm uncomfortable. When is this going to end? I hope it lasts forever. And I'm sure you could add on to it. We're saying, whenever this comes up, let it go and just become preoccupied with the breath. And as you know, it's not the easiest thing to do, to trade in all of that stuff for just the breath. Maybe some used car salesman could do a better job than I can in getting us all to do it. But that's what temporarily we're being asked to see the value of allowing all of these preoccupations to go into abeyance by taking on a new preoccupation. We call it anapanasati and we have all kinds of things. It's a preoccupation, right? If we're lucky, we become obsessed with the breath. And what can happen if we can wriggle out of the habitual patterns at least to some degree so that the normal preoccupations instead of running after thoughts which burden the mind we go to something more neutral like the breath and perhaps enter into spaces where there there are no thoughts at all or where the thoughts are there in the background, but there's not much charge to them, so we're not being hurt by them. At this point, it might be helpful to reflect on the nature of thought. Thought is very, very powerful. And yet it's just a thought. It's constructed the planet, not the literally, but so much the architecture, the culture is thought. And So much suffering is having unwanted thoughts. Even when we go to sleep, we have thoughts which are suffering, bad dreams. So the preoccupation just keeps going on. Fortunately, I think science has confirmed this now, there are a number of hours in each evening where even the most miserable of us, someone who has no home, somebody who's just tormented, thoughts turn off and we have what is called dreamless sleep. And at that point, every human being gets a certain rest. 
finally. If there are no thoughts, and it's, there's no suffering, because we don't have thoughts which tell us things that we don't really want to know about or hear or feel. Okay, so in this, in turning to the breath, and in, let's say, little by little, however we do it, through all the encouragement, just think of all that goes into attempting to do this. All of us coming here and practicing together, everything that is IMS, which is an ingenious dramaturgical creation. I mean, this is a stage set from a certain point of view, a wonderful one. And all of us are playing our part in helping us to muster up as much energy as we can to remain balanced, to not get discouraged, and to keep being reminded and to remind each other that it's not necessary to be preoccupied with those thoughts, but rather turn to the breath instead. And we try it, and perhaps we get a little bit better at it. Now, if we can enter into a certain degree of stillness, it could be five minutes, or it could even be less, where we experience a certain peace. Perhaps it's comparable to the evening when we have uh, dream-free sleep. It can get that, be comparable to it. The mind rests. Suddenly the mind is, in being preoccupied with the breath, no longer is filled up with the anguish that comes from its normal preoccupations, which, although they keep having the same negative result, we still keep on going after them. And so, somehow that circuit is arrested. And if we can be quiet for a while, one of the things that can happen is, when we then look at the old preoccupations of the mind, which we've been very interested in for a long time, no one's had to give us a course in being interested in all the stuff that comes up in our mind, especially our story. We don't need to take workshops or anything. We are really interested in it. But now if we can just dive into some stillness for a while, just sort of soak in it, where the mind, the heart experiences a certain degree of peace, when we come back out, so to speak, we come out and view the old preoccupations, sometimes what happens is they lose their ability to enchant us. We see them differently. We hear them differently. You know, um, in the Eightfold Path, one of the path factors is right speech. And probably most of you know that right speech means not lying, gossiping, uh, harsh talk, or kind of idle chit-chat. And that's one level of it. I had one teacher who explained a deeper level of it, a way of understanding uh, a kind of um, organic right speech. He said when, when the mind enters into deeper and deeper states of samadhi and calm and peace, it's so fulfilling to come to that kind of rest, even if it's but temporary, to come to that rest that before you'll open your mouth, in other words, the kind of sounds that we will 
through friction, engineer and produce words with, before we'll do that, somehow we shouldn't be ashamed. The things we the preciousness of the silence is so great that most of what we say is embarrassing. So that as you go more and more into silence, uh, a lot of things become wrong speech. It becomes much more subtle because you hear them. And what he was suggesting was once you taste the silence, there's something a little lacking in dignity to break it. It, it should be a good reason. If you're going to start talking compared to the, to the joy of stillness, it should be useful talk. It should be something that you won't be um, disappointed in or, or sorry that you broke the silence with. But in any case, it's experiential. Perhaps some of you have tasted this. If you've been in silence and then you start to speak, it's as, as they say in Zen, open your mouth and you're wrong. It feels that way. You start hearing your Brooklyn accent and sort of subtle, they're not exactly lies, but they're not exactly totally true either. And they don't quite say what you mean, and so forth. Now, if you can drop into even a little bit of silence, and if that little bit of silence helps you experience the normal preoccupations which the mind has from a slightly different point of view, perhaps making them less compelling, then it gets a little easier to go to the breath. And as it gets a little bit easier to go to the breath, you're taken into deeper levels of stillness. And as you're taken into deeper levels of stillness, it's a lot easier to hear people telling us all the time, let go, it's attachment and suffering. We can really see or actually do that. We can actually follow the teachings a little bit more easily. Because we now have a frame of reference which we have a new preoccupation. Okay, now as we do that, just in using the image, and please don't get too attached to the image because it's just uh, a temporary device. At that point, you could say the ocean becomes waveless and there's just the pure heart without the mind. uh, The mind is so often what we mean by mind or kalesis. Thoughts of greed, hatred, and confusion, delusion, uncertainty. So that's one, one direction that the practice takes through samadhi practice. Now, you might say, wow, that sounds wonderful, but you said that this is only one part of it, that samadhi has to work with wisdom. It does, because samadhi doesn't really uproot the preoccupations. Some of them will fall away because we don't put energy into them. Let's say you go into samadhi for a while. Let's say it's only 10 minutes. During those 10 minutes, so how to put this? I don't know if they still have this. In New York, they used to have these programs for uh, poor kids. Uh, send the kids to the country and keep them out of trouble. Keep, get the kids off the streets. Well, when you go into samadhi, let's say for 10 minutes, if it's reasonably deep, it's 10 minutes that you haven't been a problem for yourself. 
It's ten minutes that these preoccupations haven't been out there exercising and flexing their muscles and getting stronger. What's happened is you've been practicing something else for ten minutes. You've been practicing how to just be at peace. Learning what that's like, learning how to stay in it, how to stay in it longer, how to appreciate it. And as you do that, you can't help but see the opposite relative to the... The opposite meaning the chattering of the mind, the movement of the mind, in contrast to to the stillness. So that does happen. Some of the negative tendencies get weaker simply because we don't uh, feed them as much. The ancients use an image that is samadhi is like cutting the grass and panya or insight or wisdom is like uprooting the grass. If you cut the grass, it's going to grow back again. So that insight is needed to uproot the grass. The the uprooting is of the kalesas, these destructive tendencies. But here's the reason we need the samadhi. You can't uproot them without the samadhi. They're simply, the wisdom is this capacity of discernment. This capacity that knows. It sees what's what. It sees the way things are. On many levels, we, all, we also all have wisdom. Not only do we have samadhi, we have different levels of wisdom. And even if we never heard of meditation, we have a certain kind of wisdom. Some of it can just be ordinary common sense, streetwise, just know how to live, know to, to get in out of the rain. That's wisdom. Oh, I see. I'm getting wet. I better get to where I can get dry. That's a form of intelligence in the universe. We learn that. We learn to do that and other things, not to touch excessively hot things and so forth. To keep our hands in our pockets if we're cold as I am right now. So this uh, discernment, this uh, capacity to see the way things are, we already have it. But unless it has tremendous strength in back of it, the discernment isn't deep enough to free us. And so that's why the practice is sometimes called shamatha vipassana. And it's not that uh, one is better than the other. I mean, I guess if you had to only have one, you should pick vipassana. But you can't really do vipassana without strength. The mind has to be, to some degree, and more and more as we go on, it has to be focused. It has to have a certain uh, abiding quality to it and a certain peace. You can't investigate forever. The mind gets tired of seeing this and seeing that. And so it's very helpful if it can drop into a state of happiness and peace to refresh itself and then come out again and investigate. And so the direction of the practice is more and more that. Artfully learning how to weave the two together, like the right hand and the left hand, or the right leg and the left leg. Coordinated. Now, right now, we're giving much more attention to samadhi, and we will for a few more days. And some of you will do it for the whole retreat. And, as you know, we're also working on uh, developing the wisdom aspect. Every time we're blocked in, a, in ways that seem insurmountable, that as the preoccupation is so strong that we can't swap 
our usual preoccupation for the new one, the breath. So what, what you've been encouraged to do, at least this is my understanding, what I've been saying, I hope it's yours, is then to drop the breath and investigate, to examine it, just the way, if you've been doing Vipassana, that way. And during the day, all kinds of opportunities come up to learn about how we get caught. And if you recall, this, maybe you, I've said so many things to so many groups in the last three days, it's very difficult teaching a large retreat where people are coming and going and some are just beginning and sometimes it's a... Anyway, you understand that, I think. Because some of you are just arrived. Let's see, when did I say that? <laughs> I honestly don't remember. Well, why don't we leave it at that? Um, we'll develop this theme. Uh, I do remember. Okay. I remember what I said, but I don't remember where I said it. And I don't know if you were there. I only hope I was there. Okay. What I suggested... I, I even know where I said it. It was to the people who were leaving. <laughs> or as the people who are only staying for the weekend. If you find yourself during the day, uh, the samadhi practice is, we, we're developing this uh, uh, attempt to unify the mind around one thing, mainly in the formal sitting and in the walking, taking something simple like the foot and staying with it time and time again. But also... Uh, being encouraged to do each thing wholeheartedly and in an undivided way. If you're washing the dishes or if you're cutting up vegetables, if you're eating, to try to, to become one with that. And that also strengthens this tendency of mind. And the wisdom side comes in through the obstacles when we examine them. And also during the day, if you find yourself suffering, you find that something is off, Pause and investigate. Why am I suffering right now? See if there isn't some attachment there. See if you aren't pushing something away or grasping onto something. And it could be the tiniest thing, like the person in the walking lane right next to you is walking just a little closer to you than you like it. And you just feel crowded in and claustrophobic and this is my lane. Why don't you stay in your lane? I'll stay in my lane. Fences make good fences make good neighbors, something like that. And you see that you're suffering because you're bothered by the fact that this other person is doing their walking meditation and they're tilting over into your lane. Well, if we can get, if our reflexes can improve, if we can pick up on that, we see that we're suffering in that moment. It can be very slight. I, this probably isn't a big thing. If we can see where we're caught in the moment, because wisdom is alive. Wisdom, is, wisdom isn't something in books. I mean, that's about wisdom. That's a program note, so the menu. 
Wisdom is something that is very, it's alive from moment to moment. That's why it's so precious. It has to be lived. And so in that moment, if there's discernment, if we examine and we see, I'm holding on to some notion as to whose lane is whose lane and all of this stuff, whatever, because of some reasons. And because of it, I'm making myself unhappy in this moment. So that's, let's say, probably a very small kind of dukkha for the new people suffering or unsatisfactoriness. And the discernment can cut through that. Now, as the samadhi gets stronger and works with panya, you have an even better chance that if there's some strength in the looking, in the noticing, in the wisdom, then you have a much better chance of seeing it in the first place and of letting it go. So you allow that other person to walk the way they're walking and you walk the way you're walking and peace is restored. And so you have a small piece of suffering and a small liberation. And so what I would encourage us all for the rest of the retreat is to be sensitive to these very small forms of bondage. And we can talk about them. Really, the more trivial, the better. The big suffering, that comes up in the interviews. Right? That's what interviews are. I'm talking about small potatoes, just really small stuff, which makes up a lot of our day. Somehow the line being a little too long or whatever it is, examine it. Examine it from the point of view of wisdom. Use as uh, a norm or principle the Dharma teachings that many of you have been getting through books and through studying here and practicing here. And so in that way, our practice can be a little bit more balanced. We'll be in the formal sitting, mainly working on samadhi and being alert and sensitive all day long to seeing unwise action which produces harmfulness to us. And then we'll see if we can talk about some of that and learn about it and how to do it. Now, if you can, when you leave here, you'll have developed a skill that is extremely helpful in the so-called outside world, so-called non-yogi land. It's really, it's all one thing. But more, you will improve your ability to pick up ways in which... You see, once, when, when attention lapses, then the kalesas rush in. They fill that gap. That's why it's so important to develop mindfulness, for mindfulness to be as continuous as possible. As soon as mindfulness goes to sleep, or wisdom goes to sleep, the kalesas rush right in. And they tell us all kinds of things to do and get and not get, and then we do it. Mindfulness is supervising the whole thing as we develop it. My, mindfulness is our great protector. Because the alert quality is able to see just how we're living and how we're doing this, which will produce that. And that's why we're putting so much time and effort. The crown jewel is this mindfulness. Okay, uh, I think that's enough for... Just a few more, I don't know, facets of the samadhi practice and how it might relate to the the wisdom practice. I'm I'm really interested in what's happening for you because it is a diverse group. And so if any of you have any questions or comments or want some clarification on the uh, meditation instructions, this is a good time to do it. We can all learn from each other. Yes?
Yes. Uh, right? I wouldn't... Uh, I, I know focusing on the nose has been good for you. Okay. I wouldn't drop it yet. But if it turns out that that's uh, a fairly common... If that accompanies your work of the nose, then, it's, then p- pick up on the breath somewhere lower than the throat. But before you do that, check to see if you aren't straining. That is, if there isn't some kind of forcing going on where you're... Perhaps it, it, it can happen this way. The attention is very good and you feel a lot of light and peace. And so then you want to get more of that. And so there's a subtle kind of striving. And then we feel a band around our head or we get a headache. Now, if it's just a sitting here or there, I, don't think, I think it should stay with that object. But if it's, if it's starting to become a much more regular visitor, then I would drop down to any, any of the other, other possibilities below the throat. Does everyone understand the instructions? The instructions are remarkably simple, but uh, are they clear? Are they workable? (laughs) Yes? Um, When you're talking about um, taking in the breath through the nose, I've been focusing on my abdomen. Good. And I'm still taking in the breath through my nose. Yes. Uh, no, um, all I, that is the sensations that you are following at the abdomen are produced by the process of breathing. Yeah, you, I did, no one has had uh, two nostrils grafted onto their abdomen, <laughs> as far as I know. It's probably possible nowadays. I don't know, but it's not part of doing that practice. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, Interest, you won't be able to hold on to it over and over again if you have no interest. So the interest will be there, but there's a different accent. The interest in wisdom work and the interest in samadhi work is somewhat different. We're not looking to see impermanence or the absence of selfhood in it. Uh, But we are being very, very careful in how we notice the breath. Um, Now, what I... I may be wrong, but I feel in back of your question, uh, it's hard to know until you've done it long enough, is that it's not as if, if you keep paying attention to those same old boring in-breaths and out-breaths, that you're watching the identical thing, let's say, ten years from now. Let's say you keep doing it for ten years, you know, with, with some breaks. Because what happens is, uh, the breath itself is such a rich universe, it becomes quite subtle. Moreover, the mind states that come out of it. You see, the practice is really not about the breath. We're using the breath, and as I mentioned, it could be anything else. We're using it to unify the mind. The important thing is for the mind to become unified. And so, uh, you may find that it's interesting enough. Once you get beyond a certain threshold, when a certain degree of calm comes in and 
and other uh, other things that accompany the settling down of the mind, the, the uh, process of samadhi starting to take. You may find that you can sit and follow the breath for hours and not be bored and not look for the other preoccupations that uh, dominated your interest for years. But what I didn't know is that the idea was to have something that repeats, which I don't want to say monotonous because you're very interested Well, no, if you, if it is monotonous, if you're not uh, with it, in, if you're not in the present. Like a hypnotism almost. Yeah. Yeah, no, we're trying to dehypnotize ourselves. We're already hypnotized. Um, but monotony is a mental problem. You see, it's something like this. You're saying the same breath coming in and out, but it isn't the same breath. First of all, it literally isn't. As if you start to look, you'll see sometimes it's a little bit more coarse or a little bit more fine or shorter or longer or it's pleasant or unpleasant. But in another way, it's not the same. The monotony comes in because we're not very mindful. That is, we're living from memory. So let's say you follow 20 breaths. If you're not fully alert, the 20th breath is being measured with a backdrop of the 19 that went before. And so it's like, oh yeah, I've been doing this long enough now. I'm tired. I've already seen 19 breaths. And I don't want to get into 20 and then it'll be 25 breaths. And But when you're in the moment, each breath is fresh. It's just born anew and dies anew. That's, that's what the practice, the samadhi practice has no future or past. None whatsoever. You're just with that occurrence as it occurs, period. Now, that's what we're developing. We're more likely to fall into the former, where we do have a context of memory, and we're at, boy, I've been doing this for 45 minutes. It really is monotonous. So that we make monotonous. Now, that lesson or that, mes- that lesson applies to daily life as well. There is a potential in life for enormous tedium. Have any of you noticed that? Maybe you have to be at least 20 years old to learn it. (laughs) But then when it gets to be 30 or 40, when you get on, there's a potential for enormous tedium. How many more times can we wash the dishes and then dirty them again? Or whatever it is that we do over and over and over and over and over and over again. Make the bed and get it... Unmake the bed, make the bed, unmake the bed. How many more rolls of toilet paper do we have to replenish? And then take the wrapping off it and then we all hate to pull that socket out, you know. So we leave a little bit of toilet paper so that the next person will have to do it. Okay, so we're living in memory a lot. But if we're very much more in the present, then it's not seen as doing that same old thing over again because what we're doing is just what we're doing. You don't want to say what? Yes, if you can uh, follow the breath for one hour, we'll give you a certain amount of money. Or What, what is it that you want? <laughs> you want a certificate at the end of it? Uh, you see, how do you get to that freshness? This is... Uh, good. You don't find the breath interesting? No, I know 
Okay, in the breath. But you see, that's thinking. The, the, the freshness that I'm talking about is not an idea. Uh, let's back off a bit. How are you going... Let, let's just allow the word freshness to be... Let's assume we are talking about the same thing. Uh, one of the main uh, ways in which Vipassana proceeds, all the aspects of our practice, so many of them anyway, is that you get to a particular quality through its opposite. That is... We all want peace when we get there through examining restlessness. We all want to be very compassionate, but in order to get there, we have to look at our selfishness. You tell me, whatever, what quality would you like? Uh, a lot of the, our starting point is us as we are. Not, not an ideal. So, the freshness I'm talking about actually comes about from the repeated examination of the breath or some other suitable object. And a large part of what is happening while we're learning how to do that is that we're experiencing it the way you are. It's not that there's something strange about you. Is that, yeah, it's not exciting enough and what's the big deal and another in-breath and another out-breath and so forth. But it's by continuing to do that that you will experience the freshness. It's not that it has to be different or it has to have five heads or you know something of that sort. It's the same breath, but what's happening is that the knowing has changed. The quality of knowing has changed and the quality of knowing changes by use. As it becomes refined by practicing it. So I'm afraid, supposing we said, okay, drop the breath, we'll give you something else. The same thing would happen because the problem isn't the something else. It's the nature of the mind that's the problem or the awareness that we haven't refined sufficiently. Does that make sense? Yes. It's too intellectual what you're saying. I think what you ought to do is just do the practice and learn from the doing of it rather than trying to figure it all out ahead of time. It's not going to work. Yeah. I mean, I could make up another set of words, but I don't think that, I think what will help. That's keep it simple. Stick to the present. I know you want you all want to hear much more than that. <laughs> what? I'm right about the silence. Yeah. Okay, now, if you get mired in that, let's say you start getting more and more silent, and then you start becoming more and more averse to speaking, that would be called emptiness sickness. <laughs> really, because it's fine to go through that and to taste that, but then the next step, we also are human beings who must speak to each other, must communicate. Now, there are some whose karma is to just be quiet, you know, to go into silence for the rest of their life, but that's not, probably not true for you. You're asking a question right now and you've asked questions before. You came into an interview. It was rather lengthy, right? So I think you get something out of talking, just yet anyway. So what I'm trying to say is that 
What am I trying to say? <laughs> we, we have to come full circle. See, it's not that we want to get so silent that we become disgusted with speaking. We want to, uh, the silence is helpful in that it refines the speaking so that we can really learn how to talk and use that. It's a very beautiful human capacity to be able to communicate and to, for it to have its right place, to refine it, not to uh, discard it. So this is on the way to that. It's the same with thinking. We've talked about thinking. It's not to get, uh, if it were possible, some kind of a lobotomy so we never think anymore. It's actually to to establish a proper relationship to thought. So that, for example, to have thoughts that are not so destructive, or when they are destructive, to be freer of them than, than we are. To let them just come and go, rather than grasp onto them and breathe life into them. Anything else about the... Yes? Mm-hmm. Thinking, thinking, seeing, seeing. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's been sort of a relaxation up mm-hmm. to now, at least, mm-hmm. to not be worrying about that. Be worrying about what? About making sure I'm noting everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, just having the one object and not, not uh, noting all of the intrusions. Uh, uh, as I say, up till now, at least, it's been very relaxing. It's sort of shucked off some jobs there. I didn't have to do anything. Okay, now that's very good for the task that we've set for ourselves, which, de- which is developing calm. Yeah. But uh, the other practice where you use mental notes, uh, vipassana, uh, that's going to come back in and you will want... Yeah. But, but it's just for the present, at least, it's been very relaxing. Good, that's what, that's what it's about. That's part of what it's about. Fine, if it's working that way, that's good. One, we have time for one last comment or question. Yes. Um, sometimes when I'm taking in a breath, it starts to take on uh, a form, um, a color, like a, a white layer, a gold <coughs> or blue or something like that. And I'm wondering if that should be avoided because that means that the mind is still playing. Yeah, but how, how would you avoid it? What, do, what can we do? What can you do about it? Yeah, uh, that's. I don't know about more. The, 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 uh, there are many mental things that accompany the breath. That is, many many times people will describe their breath, but what they're really describing is their mind. But w- what we're attending to is the raw sensations, and the mind will throw up things about the breath. It could be an image of it, or coloration, or what have you. We don't want to get into war with anything. It's a nonviolent practice. So what we do is we stay with the breath and let the light do what it's going to do. Just as, let's say, if you're following the breath and cars drive by, we can't stop them. So we're with the breath and in the periphery we hear the cars or thoughts come through the mind. But the main thing is to uh, stay home or stay at home with the breath. The breath is our home, our anchor. And the other will pass. Remember, the power of the practice in its simplicity is the exclusivity of the object. The fact that we're staying with this one object over and over and over again. And the only way you can do that is to let go of all the enticements that the mind has. Either they're trying to draw you in or through being negative. 
but we get caught. And the, the quality that's so valuable in samadhi is the unwaveringness in the face of any kind of conditions. And so all of these negative states, in a sense, all these things that interfere with what, what might be a perfect sitting in samadhi practice are the ways in which we train ourselves. Because more and more, you won't have to get sucked in and you can stay with the breath. Uh, for example, your knee hurts. Probably at the beginning, you just want to go to it all the time. Okay, now, it's not that we're denying it. It's just that we're with the breath and the knee pops up and then an idea pops up and then a plan and a worry. Now, the more you can stay with the breath, what tends to happen is you develop that kind of mind that can remain firm in the face of whatever else is being demanded of you. Now, wouldn't that be helpful in life? Not just forget about meditation or spiritual practice. Very often, we're required to be competent on the conditions that are not ideal. You know, if you have children or whatever the situation is, whatever your job is, wouldn't it be nice if the mind was so serviceable that independent of whether it's a nice day or not a nice day or people like you or don't like you, that the mind is able to have that steadfast quality? It's a big help. And in spiritual work, it's a prerequisite, it's necessary. Otherwise, all the notions about wisdom, etc., are fanciful. They just don't go deep enough. Okay, why don't we do something else boring, like walk?